Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, wherever you may live in the world. Uh, but then again, for some of you, it's probably already Saturday, Saturday, regardless of where you may live in the world. But I know where I live, it's uh, Friday evening. So um, here we are uh, discussing um, more to uh, the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien by Mary Elise Antoine. And this episode is going to be focusing on the actual battle for Prairie du Chien. But let's keep in mind that just because it's a battle, it doesn't mean that it's a one-day ordeal and that whoever emerges the victor and whoever emerges uh, the loser it doesn't mean that the uh, conflict itself is completely over. We should, you know, be reminded of the fact that when a battle takes place, it lasts more than one day. And perhaps that's not a bad thing, because whoever wins the fight one day could end up uh, becoming the uh, loser uh, the next day in battle. So let's get prepared for a, um, a great uh, podcast session as we uh, continue to journey even further into this uh, conflict along the prairie, a.k.a. the Battle for Prairie du Chien. So our leadoff uh, question for this uh, podcast is episode is the following. Where did the Indians at Prairie du Chien head to shortly after William Clark's arrival? Remember, um, William Clark arrived into Prairie du Chien in early June, of 1813. Did did the Indians uh, freak out when William Clark arrived? No, but the Indians that were there uh, left in enough time to where they sought shelter in um, places where they would not have been um, sought after or let alone that the enemy would not have uh, thought of uh, going after them. But for these Indians, their biggest concern was uh, that they did not want to, um, it wasn't a question of being so much caught by the enemy, but perhaps be forced to uh, share secrets that would, um, that would not only endanger their well-being, but that of their, uh, that of the uh, people above them who are, um, who are their sole protectors being uh, Britain, or I should say that the uh, uh, British uh, Indian traders, or let alone the agents, so the answer is, uh, the answer t that you all are wanting to know is, okay, to this question of where did the Indians at Prairie du Chen head to shortly after William Clark's arrival, uh, did they, where do you think they went? Do you think they went north or further south of Prairie du Chen? Well, they went north of Prairie du Chen to um, Michilimackinac. We've discussed Michilimackinac quite a bit, but that's where um, the Indians went, and Ironically, those Indians that left Prairie du Chien for Michilimackinac weren't the only Indians um, who arrived there. It turns out that prior to the Prairie du Chien um, Indian peoples, prior to their arrival, there were about anywhere from 1,500 to 1,600 Indians already stationed in place. So it is fair to say that perhaps Michilimackinac could be seen as a refuge haven for Indians whom, um, whom are worried of, about their safety but have really nowhere else to go that would ensure uh, long-term uh, safety or uh, protection from outside aggressors being none other than William Clark and his men. So the Indians from Prairie du Chien um, turned to a, a lieutenant colonel by the name of Robert McDowell, and his last name is spelled M-C-D-O-U-A-L-L, McDowell. The Indians at Prairie du Chien uh, came to him and not for, um, for an assortment of things, but one of the reasons for coming to Lieutenant Colonel Robert McDowell was that uh, the Indians along the prairie provided him information about William Clark and his forces, whom established their presence along the prairie. I think it's fair to say that the Indians at Prairie du Chien, they probably knew about William Clark prior to his arrival. So this wasn't 
breaking news. They knew that it was probably just a matter of time before Clark and his forces would make their presence along the prairie. What the Indians obviously were hoping for was that the British would keep their word in terms of protecting the Indians along the prairie, not just the Indians themselves, but for the British people whom had already uh, made their presence established well before uh, Clark and his men ever sought foot on uh, that uh, on, along the prairie. So Lieutenant Colonel uh, McDowell, he's one of those uh, officers who's very bright. He's um, what you call a game planner. He doesn't uh, live in the moment. He knows that um, there's a lot at stake. So he wastes little time in giving the tribes all the tribes who came from Prairie du Chen to Michilimackinac, he wastes little time in giving those tribes all the necessary support and assistance needed behind retaking Prairie du Chen. And why is that, folks? Because Lieutenant Colonel uh, Robert McDowell values the Upper Mississippi Indian tribes not only for just what they have um, brought in terms of, um, what do you call it, a means of trading purposes, but he values these upper Mississippi Indian tribes all because of their loyalties. And where do those loyalties lie, folks? To England. These loyalties just didn't happen overnight, but these loyalties have been in firm establishment ever since the French and Indian War ended. So we're talking about 50 years here, folks, pretty much close to 50 years of, um, of firm, solid uh, relationships. And many of these relationships, we have to keep in mind, are also have also been uh, formed into marriages where uh, many of the British trader, Indian traders married into um, Indian families, married Indian women, um, and because of that uh, union, the union itself is even stronger than, say, uh, just forming an alliance between Indian nations and the British for trading purposes. So the unions themselves, not just so much for trading but for marriage, is what makes this um, partnership all in the name of loyalties ever so strong. Now, it's fair to say that probably a lot of the Indian tribes at Prairie du Chen were deeply impacted by the American presence. But if there were two tribes in particular that were greatly impacted, it was the Sioux and the Winnebago. And we will mention more about the Winnebago here shortly, but those two Indian tribes in particular were deeply impacted by the American presence. Did Lieutenant Colonel McDowell advocate the use of Indian presence at Prairie du Chien. Yes, he did, especially knowing that American forces within the prairie placed other forts, not only such as Michilimackinac, but how about Labaye, uh, a.k.a. present-day Green Bay, Wisconsin, in grave danger. So the biggest concern for uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert uh, McDowell here is that if Prairie du Chen were to fall, then he knows that Michilimackinac could either be next or Labaye. He's got to have a fort in the middle in Prairie du Chen that can um, thwart off attacks that um, have the potential to go in opposite directions. There has to be a central um, area to, uh, to prevent the worst case scenarios from uh, happening. But in order to prevent the worst-case scenarios from happening, wouldn't it be fair to say that it's smart enough that Lieutenant Colonel Robert McDowell uses the Indians? He uses the Indians not for personal advantage, but for, um, but for militaristic advantages because, hey, look, the Indians have been along the prairie for years, even before the British established uh, their own settlement with the with the Indians consent but if the Indians have known this land longer than the British have why not give them all the advantages so that they can prevent further encroachments Lieutenant Colonel McDowell 
turned to British traders for assistance with helping keep Prairie du Chien in British control, but he turns to three men in particular who are seasoned veterans, one of them being Joseph Rollett, Thomas Anderson, a second one, and then a third man named Pierre Grignon, or Grignon, whom all three of these men had firm ties to Prairie du Chien and La Baie. It's good to have um, men like these three whom I just mentioned who have solid ties not only to Prairie du Chien but to La Baie because they know all the ins and outs. They know the comings and goings of Indians who frequent these um, the, the lands as well as the waters, especially considering that La Baie, or what we now know as present-day Green Bay, Wisconsin, is on Lake Michigan. All three men were, were each instructed to raise a unit of fighters whom would serve under each commanding officer. So basically, these, in order for anything to really be successful, these three men have got to raise a unit of fighters. They've got to have people who are committed to this cause and whom are willing to um, die for the mother country, being none other than England. Does anybody know about this man uh, named William McKay? I didn't know anything about him until I read the book last year, but is it fair to say that William McKay is, is a well-known person? Yes. But whom exactly is he well-known by? Is he well-known by um, the Americans or by Indians and Canadians? So our two choices are choice A, the Americans, or choice B, Indians and Canadians. Uh, the answer is choice B, Indians and Canadians. Okay, so how exactly is William McKay well known then by the Indians and Canadians? Well, he was a one-time uh, fur trader with the Northwest Company. And because he had such a um, successful career as a fur trader in the Northwest Company, and his uh, business ties were directly to uh, not only just uh, the Canadians, but to Indians uh, along the upper Mississippi um, region, it's fair to say that um, he would go about offering his service to Britain by becoming a lieutenant colonel. You know, um, it makes practical sense to uh, stay put where you um, have been for a long period of time. If you have strong relations amongst uh, the Indians and the Canadians, why would you want to risk giving that up? You know, there's always the the potential to, to do the exact opposite where it could where it could backfire but for William McKay he knows that um, if he's been treated well by the Indians including the Canadians keep your loyalties where they need to need to be not just for the short term but for the long term so um, you know, we've talked about Robert Dixon quite a bit. Is he going to be involved in the battle for Prairie du Chien? Anybody want to take a guess? The answer is no. Uh, Robert Dixon is not going to be involved in the battle at Prairie du Chien. But he ends up staying behind at Michilimackinac, where he would oversee goods coming in from Canada to helping ensure that the Indians' survival, to o helping ensure... Indians survival come winter you know people think sometimes oh you have to wait a little while before the next season comes into play but for Robert Dixon you know he's also one of you could also refer to him as a logistics coordinator in other words yes supplies could be coming in say three months before winter and for some people that might seem like a long time but we have to remember in the 19th century and even before then that, yes, we still had fall, winter, spring, and summer, but it was much different compared to um, to today's um, climate for a multitude of reasons. But it was um, essential to be more than just a step ahead of the game. So for Robert Dixon, you know, here he is staying behind at Michilimackinac overseeing the uh, comings and goings of goods, or more so the goods coming in from Canada to Michilimackinac, where 
this is a logistics job. I mean, he's got to think about not just for the for the next couple of weeks. He's got to think about, hey, what kind of um, supplies am I going to have come three to five months from now that will last uh, long term? Especially knowing that he's got close to 2,000 Indians at Michilimackinac. It's almost like he's running a, um, a soup kitchen in today's time, what we might think of. It's not a soup kitchen, although it could have a few similarities, but it's fair to say that even Michilimackinac is more than just foods and clothing provision. It is also um, a fort where um, military provisions um, will be uh, stored. After all, you know, those provisions will come in hand for both the British and Indians when going into actual combat with the Americans. So, as for Robert Dixon, yes, he's overseeing the Indians' uh, survival come winter, and um, he's also um, over, overseeing not just the goods coming in, but the goods that are essential for the campaign that will um, retake Prairie du Chen from an organizational standpoint. But, interesting enough that the campaign for retaking Prairie du Chen from an organizational standpoint only took one week's time. That's pretty um, awesome in terms of um, from a logistical uh, standpoint in terms of how um, how efficient the goods were able to come in uh, from Canada into the United States within one week's uh, time frame. Uh, besides the Winnebago and the Sioux tribes, Indians from the Chippewa and the Menominee nations joined alongside Lieutenant Colonel William McKay in the battle for Prairie du Chen. So when we think of Indians in this battle, it's not all confined to one nation of tribes. It's fair to say that, okay, Winnebago, Sioux, Chippewa, Menominee, that's four tribes right there. It could very well be possible that a few other tribes join, perhaps making the total Indian count at this battle in terms of overall tribes being more than five. All right, here's another question here. Did Lieutenant Colonel McKay order men into uh, Fort Shelby? Okay, and uh, who, um, who built Fort Shelby? Wasn't that the Americans? And who instructed that the fort be built? Uh, William Clark. And remember for whom Fort Shelby's named after? Uh, Isaac Shelby, uh, the governor of Kentucky. So did Lieutenant Colonel McKay order men into Fort Shelby? Yes. The men under McKay went into the home of a fella who the Americans did not know in terms of, of a dark secret. This man is Antoine Brisbois. Sounds like, you know, Brisbois to me is a, like a French last name. The Americans didn't realize that Antoine Brisbois had become an unknown British sympathizer within um, the American military. It's fair to say there's always a dark horse somewhere in the ranks. There's always that black sheep, someone you thought you knew, but yet he or she is hiding skeletons in their closet. This could be an example here of that old famous saying, so close but so far away. In other words, if you're on the American military side and you're around Antoine Brisbois, why would you think for one second that he would be going behind your back in terms of, um, in terms of uh, having uh, sympathies towards the British? when, you know, he should be on your side, the American side. So the uh, British forces under uh, Lieutenant Colonel McKay uh, go into the home of Antoine Brisbois, who is this uh, British sympathizer, and Brisbois provided British forces with valuable information about Fort Shelby and its fortifications. To me, that's a treasonous act for this person. He is—he literally is a traitor, in my opinion. He has uh, pretty much sold his country out just so that he could um, just so that he could appease the enemy. Maybe he did it because he 
feared that once they had come inside his home that they were going to uh, inflict a massive harm on him. Maybe not just on him, but perhaps his family. If he even did have a family, that I don't know. But the bottom line is people uh, buckle, or I should say crack, under the um, most unpredictable of circumstances where more often than not it can come down to not just life and death, but where your allegiances, or aka loyalties, really stand, not just short-term, but long-term. It's one of those situations that either makes you or breaks you. Lieutenant Mc Colonel McKay and the forces, they arrived into uh, Prairie uh, Duchenne on July 17th without being detected by U.S. forces. But is it fair to say that maybe Antoine Brisbois had a part in overseeing to it that Lieutenant McKay, Colonel McKay and his forces got into Prairie Duchenne without being detected? Perhaps so. Uh, Mary Elise Antoine didn't specifically state that in her book, but it is very possible that with all the intelligence that Antoine Brisbois had, that he would have seen over, overseen that the, um, that the uh, journey uh, into the prairie went as smooth as possible without without one single detection from the enemy. Um, whom was the first on the American side to spot British and Indian forces making their way into Prairie Duchenne's primary village? This man's name was Sandy. He was Nicholas Boalvin's servant. So it was Nicholas, um, not Nicholas Boalvin, but uh, Sandy was the one that pretty much warned uh, the uh, American forces that, hey, the British have made their way into uh, Prairie Duchenne's main village. Joseph Rawlett and Thomas Anderson, with their forces, including Sioux and Winnebago tribes, took positions above Fort Shelby. July 17, 1814, saw Lieutenant Colonel McKay instruct Captain Thomas Anderson to go straight to Fort Shelby. This is going to sound a bit crazy, so let's be prepared for some twists and turns right here. So, Lieutenant Colonel McKay instructs Captain Thomas Anderson to go straight to Fort Shelby under a truce flag. A truce flag, to me, is one of those flags that represents surrender. But... Do you think the United States would want to surrender? No. The reason for this um, surrender proposal has nothing to do with forcing the United States against their own will. Although that would seem tempting for the British to want to do, because after all, it seems like the British have been surprising us at, for at forts like most notably uh, Fort Dearborn, Detroit, early on in the war where we didn't really muster any kind of uh, courage to be willing to want to fight the British and the Indians. But for this particular case, um, Thomas Anderson, per uh, Lieutenant Colonel McKay's instructions, goes straight to Fort Shelby under the truce flag with the terms for surrender, where Lieutenant Joseph Perkins of the United States agreed to not completely surrender, folks, but he agreed to uh, Captain Anderson's proposal, and that was for halting fighting activities until the next day come morning at daylight. Well, I know if some of us would say, okay, if it was already still afternoon, what difference does it make? As long as you can see, you should be able to fight still. Well, we've got to keep this in mind, folks, that the British, like most powerful European nations of their time, most notably in the 18th and 19th century, they have, a, they have their own customary rules of warfare. And that, of course, was even prevalent during the American Revolutionary War 30-some years earlier. So, for the British, if they feel that they're not ready to fight on this particular day, then the best they can do is say, hey, we will fight you all, but we will fight another day. This truce flag is, is not about who's going to surrender first. What it just means is that today isn't our day to fight. But be prepared come another day or two from now when the real stuff does take place. 
We'll see who emerges as the victors. However, here is the flip side to it, folks. Did the Indian tribes, whom were with Lieutenant Colonel William McKay, did they support or oppose this decision in terms of delaying the fighting until after July 17th? Yes. The Indian tribes made it very clear to William, Lieutenant Colonel William McKay that, um, that the decision to delay fighting would have consequences. For one, it would give the Americans more time to prepare their, um, their necessary defense preparations in terms of how they might not only just go on the offense against us, but how they will go about fortifying their um, fort. But also, too, if the Indians are delayed with fighting, will it throw them off guard to where they might just simply lose interest in fighting? Perhaps so. After all, you know, promises have been made left and right, and while the British have been good about their promises for some time, the last thing the Indians don't want to see, even in a time of war with, with the mother country as their partner, is to see this mighty power in their eyes start um, engaging in wishy-wash activities where they promise one thing and then fail to deliver come crunch time when it really matters most. So, Lieutenant Colonel William McKay decides that it's best to not delay delay uh, maneuvers. In other words, it's best not to delay what we've already started. We just need to, um, we need to get the ball rolling and see where this goes. So, considering that the same delay maneuvers happened in the past, in past conflicts, based off of past experiences with past conflicts that were unrelated to what we're focusing on now, the delay, the delay tactics did lead Indian nations to drift away and lose interest. So it's best to stay on the offensive, and it's best to keep this um, mission going while you've got it in place, because if not, then who's to say that the Indian tribes who are already with you are going to want to fight, or are going to want to resume fighting a couple of days from now. So in other words, don't live in the moment. Keep this thing going, because once you break it off, there's no going back. So, Lieutenant Colonel McKay reverses the original orders by keeping all companies in their positions above and below Fort Shelby, a.k.a. positions, or what we might refer to as premise spots. However, once, the, um, once the, this actual battle began, would, is it fair to say that one or both sides went about firing upon each other and did they have equal results or did they have little to no results what do you all think of course when i you know so easy when we think of battles it's so easy to hear you know the commanding officer say present arms take your position make ready aim fire it's so easy to get that in mindset, but what we have to remember is, is that not all battles are fought on an open battlefield. As a matter of fact, the uh, book jacket, or the jacket cover that I'm looking at right here for this book, has pictures of uh, British soldiers next to Indians. The soldiers are standing up, the Indians are lying down and firing the officer is presenting his sword out, and he is probably, other than saying make aim, ready, fire, he's probably instructing them to, to um, stay on the offense, and he's instructing them basically by giving other necessary commands. So it's not like, you know, okay, after the officer says make ready, aim, fire, he goes and just sits back and does nothing. No, he's got to constantly be coaching his um, units to tell them what to do should should enemy fire get so bad that they'll need to shift positions. So, yes, starting out, British and American forces fired upon each other with little to no results. But this can be attributed in part due to British companies stationed along the prairie 
whereas Fort Shelby stood on an island. Okay, so let's keep this in mind, folks. You know, Prairie du Chien is not it's it's near bodies of water, rivers. Yes, you know, Prairie du Chien is also along you know grassland, an open grassland, but it's surrounded by water at the same time. The landscape that we see now today was probably not the same la landscape we would have seen a little over 200 years ago, um, especially during this uh, particular battle. So, okay, given where uh, the British companies are stationed along the prairie, and here you have Fort Shelby on an island, I could see where their firing right away would have been off track to where they would not have been able to have hit their targets up close or even from near from a nearby distance that is hitting soldiers and knocking them to the ground but if the British have cannons is it fair to say that their cannons their cannons are off track as well possibly so but as for the Americans they are firing with six pound six pounders the cannon that was fired was also well off target. So neither side has really struck a decisive blow just yet. So what are the Indian tribes? Where are they? Are they out on the front lines? No, but they are doing something differently that will help the British. After all, it is fair to say that if you're fighting a battle, you don't want to have everybody on the same bat on out on the battlefield in one position because if you have everybody out there the greater the likelihood that you'll probably lose more people so it's fair to say that you maybe take half of your um, forces out on the open battlefield and then maybe the other half hide somewhere so that if in the event your main frontline people have to go and retreat and the enemy's chasing them the further the retreat goes and say the uh, first line goes into the woods and they lure the enemy into the woods the enemy may not come back out alive or if they do their numbers will be much smaller compared to what they had uh, prior to going deep into the woods I know it sounds a little bit complex but think about it folks we have to be mindful of the fact that warfare has um, changed drastically it changed drastically even when the American Revolution be took place the American Revolutionary War even when the French and Indian War broke out um, from an earlier podcast um, what was it at uh, Monongahela or around what we know now as present-day Pittsburgh um, at Fort Necessity where um, General Edward Braddock of the British the British were pretty much slaughtered in the wilderness around Monongahela and Fort ne around uh, what we now know as Fort Necessity or Duquesne. Uh, the French and the Indians slaughtered countless numbers of British men to where only a handful survived, thanks largely in part because of Colonel George Washington's heroism that saved the day in terms of what was left. But, you know, we have to keep in mind that warfare itself is not confined to just an open field. There is what we call irregular style, folks aka guerrilla warfare is it fair to say that maybe the indians will use some version of guerrilla warfare at prairie du chen i believe so so what did the indian tribes do differently well for one the indian tribes actually went into prairie du chen's main village once inside the village they took cover behind homes how about that folks they took cover behind homes so think about it if you're the americans and you want to seek shelter around your homes, guess who already beat you there? The Indians. And it's not so much that they beat you there, they could fire upon you, and your whole unit could just be decimated in a matter of minutes. So think about it. That's another example there of guerrilla-style warfare. You're not fighting on an open battlefield. You could be fighting from within an inner circle, an inner circle that... Um, that you might see at first with three or five people can multiply in different directions to where once you flee one direction there's you can't escape it that's how um, we really have the Indians to thank for uh, doing guerrilla style uh, warfare in America 
The Americans, though, by the time the American Revolution comes along, are the ones that adopt it, because many of those men who fought had been veterans of the French and Indian War and learned that style of fighting from the Indians themselves. Indian uh, participation inside the main village led to the wounding of two U.S. soldiers to an American flag being cut down from musket firing. So I think it is fair to say that the um, Indian participation not only was essential, but once they had made their way into the main village of uh, Prairie du Chen, that is um, the houses around the main village not far from Fort um, Shelby, that yes, their presence was felt to where um, where they made it clear to the Americans, hey, look, we still have this land, and no matter what you do, you can't scare us. Were there battles fought along the Mississippi River via water? Yes. And this is uh, important, folks, um, to, um, to learn. So this is how we're going to um, discuss about it. Um, Instead of opposing ships squaring off against one another, because more often than not, when I think of battles being fought along the water, I think of one ship being for, with one country on one side and then the uh, opposing ship from another country on the opposite side squaring off, firing their cannons at one another. But that's not how it started out um, with, um, with the fighting along the water, a.k.a. Mississippi River. British forces, without changing places at Fort Shelby, fired cannonball rounds at the American gunboat, the Governor Clark, named after William Clark. However, British forces were forced to change plans. How so? They sent their own boats, they sent boats of their own into the Mississippi River, where they pretty much harassed the Governor Clark to the point where the ship, or rather I should say the boat, went off course, rather steered off course, and was forced into uh, shallower waters along the western shore of um, the main village of Prairie du Chen. Basically, by forcing this ship closer to the shoreline, they knew that they pretty much had, got, had gotten the ship to where it could no longer get back out into the main waterway. So it's fair to say by forcing a ship closer to the shoreline, the ship could meet, it could either meet a uh, fateful um, ending or it could be um, wounded to the point where it was uh, no longer fit to uh, fight, maybe just not for that day, but for a greater um, period of time. But uh, as a result of the Governor Clark uh, ship being forced close to the shoreline, the British cannon firing prevailed to where the Governor Clark was hit resulting in leakage and the anchor line being cut. Now that is quite a uh, blow, uh, to say the least, and we'll find out here in a short while why it's, why it's not so much a blow that the ship has sustained leakage and its anchor line being cut, but there are other essential reasons for why um, losing this ship not so much altogether, but losing the ship right now at this particular time has um, vital consequences. The Governor Clark got hit twice on the side, along with being hit on the stern. The damage that this boat sustained led to its departure from Prairie du Chen. That, to me, is a serious blow right there. Although the Americans, here's a question for you all, although the Americans under Lieutenant Joseph Perkins still held, or rather I should say controlled Fort Shelby going into July 18th, what disadvantage greatly impacted the British? I know it seems kind of awkward to think, okay, the British have damaged the Governor Clark gunboat. If they've damaged this gunboat, how in the world could they be at a disadvantage? There, in other words, there has to be something, something that in, to some of us might think is small, but in my opinion, this is a big disadvantage. And the British don't have a whole lot of time on their side to, um, 
to fix this problem, but it, the only way to modify it is that they're going to have to um, come up with some um, fast um, decisions, fast act uh, making decisions here shortly that will either make or break for the rest of this uh, battle. So the great disadvantage they have now is that they are low on cannonballs. Okay, so we got to think about this, folks. We don't have telephones back then or cell phones, so we can't text or we can't call and say, "Hey, we're low on cannonballs here. Is there any way you could, you know, take bring your jeep from the depot or from the fort and just supply us with fifty more cannonballs at best?" No, I, unfortunately, unfortunately, we don't have that technology just yet at this time. But the Indians are, I would have to say that as of right now, the Indians or the Indian forces or the Indian tribal nations whom have sided with the British, not just prior to this war and prior to this battle, but who've been with the British for so long, they have really been the wise people. They have been the ones that have probably taught the British more things than we could ever imagine in the sense that they have probably taught them what what can be reused, what can be salvaged, scrapped, so that nothing goes completely to waste. But then again, the Indians, I will have to admit, were very resourceful people. They didn't let anything go to waste regardless of the region that they lived in. So yes, they are low on cannonballs, so how are they going to fix this problem? The Indian forces go about collecting scattered cannonball fragments or pieces that the Americans had fired with. And many of these um, fragmented pieces were three-pounders. British and Indian forces went about setting up a furnace where lead fragments were melted into lead cannon shot. Besides melting the cannon shot, both um, groups went about um, developing what were called breastworks or fortifications. And these uh, breast, what are called breastworks, aka fortifications, they are of uh, piled material. Does anybody know what piled material is? How about logs, fence rails, stones? These um, fortifications were placed roughly anywhere from 450 to 700 yards of Fort Shelby. That's a perfect... Um, defense set up right there, not only to protect yourselves against American uh, firing, but also to go about mounting an attack, not just by means of rifle, but by firing cannons at the fort to where the fort itself could be very, very vulnerable to um, damage. Did Lieutenant Joseph Perkins on the United States side, he's the uh, head commander, did he face any disadvantages? Yes. If I thought the British faced disadvantages, I hate to say this, but I think Joseph Perkins' disadvantages were far more severe. His forces were short on supplies. And where do you think those supplies were, folks? Those supplies were from the Governor Clark gunboat. The, the supplies were the backup provisions, but they could not be brought to Perkins or his men because the boat had sustained, made, had sustained significant damage from enemy cannon fire. So therefore, think about this. The British didn't just drive the Governor Clark into shallower water just for the heck of it. It was devised it not so much devised, it was done because by pushing this boat into shallower water, it had no way of being able to um, provide essential backup supplies to um, the forces that were still at Fort Shelby. So basically now it really comes down to survival of the fittest. Without those provisions, it's fair to say that the Americans may not live to see another day in fighting. So if that's bad enough, folks, um, Lieutenant Perkins also is faced with a water crisis. He has a, there is a well, uh, a well for uh, water provisions. 
By mid-July, the well water levels had dropped to where Perkins's men had little to no drinking water available. This wasn't a drought, folks. It was just the fact that, uh, well, I mean, we could say that maybe there wasn't enough rain. But the bottom line is, is that Perkins and his men, their chances of fighting anymore are pretty much have been reduced slim to none. If they had those provisions from the uh, William Clark gunboat, they would have been able to have um, continued the fight for another day or at that present moment. But the bottom line is they don't really have anything else. Knowing that British and Indian forces under Lieutenant Colonel William McKay's command were, prepare were preparing an all-out launch, or rather assault, Lieutenant Joseph Perkins, with the consent of other officers, agreed that surrender was the safest option. I know for some of you, surrendering sounds like Lieutenant Perkins has uh, wimped out, or that he's a chicken. He really has no other choice in this case, folks. I mean, it's bad enough that the Governor Clark sustained major damages to where provisions could not be brought to him, but he's also got to think the, about the safety and well-being of his troops. If they don't have any drinking water, why risk uh, putting your own men out on the battlefield who are dehydrated? If they become dehydrated, they're not going to be able to fight. They're going to... Um, they're just, they could very well lose their own sanity to the point where maybe some of the men could turn on one another. It's scary to think, but when you, but when one does become dehydrated, they do lose their sanity. They do lose a lot of, uh, they lose their ability to focus and ration properly. So this is really a matter not only of survival, but in Lieutenant Perkins's eyes, it's also a matter of life and death. So Surrender is the best um, option that he has. Now, come July 20th, 1814, this is the, the formal surrender of Fort Shelby takes place. And I know for, mo for most of you, you would think, okay, this is the end. It's actually not really the end, folks. What it just means is that, uh, that it, this wasn't the Americans' day. But it doesn't mean that they've given up. They're just going to have to find another way to... Um, keep this fight going, not just to win the battle, but perhaps to keep the United States uh, from falling back into a superpower's hand where it re revert to what it was like 30 years earlier when we were still fighting for our independence from England. So this formal surrender of Fort Shelby takes place on July 20th, 1814. Lieutenant Colonel McKay gave firm orders to the Indians and in not harming the Americans. Do you believe, though, folks, that the Indians followed his instructions? They didn't. I'll give you an example. A Winnebago Indian did the opposite where he went about cutting off an American soldier's finger. The American soldier had stuck his hand out as a mean he wanted to shake the, the, the Winnebago Indian's hand in terms of um, accepting surrender. The Indian took matters into his own hands by being barbaric and cutting off his finger. I don't know if this soldier survived or not, but to me that was a very inhumane thing to do, but perhaps but you know, we must sadly keep in mind that for the Indians, they don't like outsiders. I think it's a miracle that for 50 years they have actually um, honored um, friendships and alliances with the British. But as for the Americans, they don't. we obviously don't meet their criteria, but at the same time, the Indians along the western frontiers see uh, the Americans as invasive species still. They know that the reason why the Americans want to come into the Western territories is for land. Remember, folks, the British weren't interested in taking over Indian land. They were more interested in maintaining long-term alliances. And they were 
gracious enough to accept what was given to them in terms of land, but they but the Indians know that the Americans are the exact opposite. They view us as land-driven, hungry people who don't have any boundaries. Once we acquire land, there's no stopping. The formal surrender also included the British having access to existing munitions and supplies, that is, the American munitions and supplies inside Fort Shelby. Yeah, it's more than just surrendering the fort from the outside, folks. Whatever's on the inside becomes the enemies. To wrap up this uh, episode, um, here's our final question. Would the formal surrender on July 20th, 1814, end all existing hostilities at Prairie du Chien? No. Lieutenant Colonel McKay knew American forces would live to fight for another day. And when I'm on the air again next with you all, we will learn exactly what these, um, what will entail next in terms of American forces living to fight for another day. Well, thank you again, as always, for listening. It's great to be on the air with all of you, and I am just amazed each time I'm getting ready to podcast when I look at how many plays I have, and not just plays total, but plays per um, podcast episode I've done. It's always encouraging to know just how many people are listening. So thank you again for um, for doing what you all in, enjoy doing, and that is listening to my podcasts, sharing them with people, sharing them with people regardless of where they live, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world. Thank you for just sharing it, because without you all, I'm not sure how I would be able to podcast. I'm not sure how successful I would even be able to be. So. There is a reason for why I do all this, because for one, I enjoy history, and two, while I'm having to remind myself that history isn't always pretty, we can still find ways to learn about the unpleasant trees so that they don't happen again in the future, regardless of how big or small those unpleasant trees are. But, once again, thank you for uh, making my uh, job in with uh, podcasting, uh, rewarding, enjoyable, and most important of all, educational. I'm not a teacher, folks, but I can say by podcasting, I am my own teacher. I am my own teacher, not just for myself, but for you all. I may not know everything, but I make it a priority to know what's relevant and what's useful so that come podcast time, it's brought to you all, my fellow listeners, and I also make sure that you all don't miss out on anything. But then again, all of us, including myself, I think it's fair to say we all don't miss out on any, on anything. So thank you again for listening, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Take care for now, and stay safe.